you know, death is about the living. So empathy, pluralism, compassion, respect um, for people different than you are. These are all muscles that atrophy if you don't use them. So um, stay mindful of that. Cultivate that side, too. Um, it's just as important because understanding people and why they do the things they do and who they're important to and who is important to them. And, um, you know, those will all make you a better investigator knowing that about people. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Back in January, I went to a forensic science event at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. And this was the kickoff to their week-long course called Critical Thinking in Death Scene Investigation. My guest today is the creator of that course, Dr. Jenna Marie Truesdell. Now, in addition to teaching, she is also a forensic anthropologist and a death scene investigator. So we're going to talk all about this course and how she developed her fascination with the nutshell studies of unexplained death, which are utilized in the course. All right, here's Dr. Jana Marie Truesdell. The first thing that I wanted to talk about you, I guess this is about a month ago now. So you completed teaching a course at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, which was called Critical Thinking in Death Scene Investigation. And I know this isn't the first year for this course. So I'm curious kind of how how did you get the idea? Like how did this course start and how many years have you been doing this? So I have been a death investigator since uh, 2008. Um, I was certified, uh, ABMDI certified in 2012. Uh, and so by virtue of having been in the field for that amount of time, coming up on 15 years now, uh, I've been lucky enough to work with several offices. I work in several different Offices sort of part time. Uh, and I'm also a forensic anthropologist. So I am in and out of other offices as well all the time. So I am able to, I've been lucky enough to be able to see how a lot of different offices work. And just like anywhere else, everybody does things differently. So that would be fine if it was little everyday operational things. But in a death investigation context, uh, and this isn't just a Wisconsin thing or a local thing. This is an, a nationwide thing. Uh, it's actually quite problematic because there's no official standardization um, or checks on quality for scene investigations or uh, it, individual investigators. And with that, there's no accountability for those scene investigations. There are rules for pathologists, obviously, and there's rules for the offices themselves and how they how they should run, but the actual, and, and there are published guidelines as well, guidelines on how to do scene investigations, but they are entirely voluntary. So again, there's no one holding you to those. You should just follow those guidelines, but nobody's checking up on that. So uh, someone in one jurisdiction might have extensive up-to-date training and really know what they're doing. And they have all the information they need to uh, come up with good, uh, make good decisions on scene, but then someone 10 miles up the road might have no training whatsoever. So, and jurisdictions don't really talk to each other very often. They, unless they overlap for a case or something like that, but that then means that people don't, people in one jurisdiction don't really know what the other, the, the neighboring jurisdiction or two jurisdictions over are doing. So there's a lot of disconnect and this leads to this lack of standardization leads to 
outside agencies sort of not having a good understanding of what death investigation is as a, as a profession, um, what death investigators do, what they, uh, what they need, what they need to be preserved at a scene. A lot of times, if you talk to death investigators, someone will say, usually people just call us and say, okay, we've done everything that needs to be done. Now it's, you can come and get the body. And that's not, that's not what death investigation is. We are an independent, you know, agency that does their own investigation, just like law enforcement does. So, but with a different perspective, obviously. So uh, there's that disconnect of what death investigation actually is and how to do it. So what I'm trying to do with the course is to provide an introduction uh, to what the discipline actually entails, what we actually do, what we, what a good scene investigation is, and why that's important, why it's important to do these things, and why it's important to get them right. Uh, so it's been running since 2019. Uh, minus a COVID year. And uh, in addition to university students that can take the course, there are places open for outside professionals like law enforcement. We've had detectives, we've had medical legal death investigators who are sort of just starting out and learning the ropes and that sort of thing. So there's the students mixed with the outside professionals. And not only do they then get to network and see what each other does, but um, we sort of hopefully in learning the same material and why it's important, then in this grassroots kind of way, we can sort of all get on the same page. Okay. That, that makes sense. I think that's, a, that's a really good idea to kind of uh, spread the word about what, you know, like you said, what for, you know, death in scene investigation is really like and what skills you really need for that. So th this course is uh, one week and I know you divide, you know, each day is a different topic to kind of get all these, you know, uh, cover all these different skills. So I'm, I'm curious, can you tell me about the, the different topics each day? Yeah, uh, the course is short, but it is intense. It is eight to five every day for six days. And this, um, this sort of week-long structure was to allow for the inclusion of those outside professionals who wouldn't be able to take a semester long class per se, but they can do a few days once a year. So um, that's the reason that it is sort of the way that it is to, to be inclusive in that way. Uh, and actually the weekly structure does lend itself perfectly because there are five days and then a final day, but essentially five days. And then there are five manners of death. So natural, accidental, suicide, homicide, and undetermined. So each day gets its own manner of death which works out quite well. So in the mornings, we discuss things that are relevant to what we're focusing on that day. So for example, on the accidental day, we would talk about things like falls or various forms of asphyxiation. Um, and then on homicide days, we would talk about recognizing the differences between blunt and sharp force trauma or poisoning or things like that. So, uh, and then in the afternoon after lunch, we would break into groups, usually four groups, and then we would work our way through uh, four nutshells that are appropriate for those days, um, or at least we're meant to think that they're appropriate for those days. They might not be, but um, you wouldn't know that till working through it. So, um, but there are 18 slash 19 uh, so each day we just take four. And this uh, this entails the groups taking an hour to go through the nutshells, the little scenes. Uh, and I, I know you've already had Bruce on, so you know all about the nutshells. So, uh, yeah. but we, yeah, so we would describe 
Uh, we would describe the scene, document the scene. Uh, this is writing a report, getting the flow of how to write reports, identifying the decedent, examining the body, the trauma, and whatever else is there. They come up with uh, and test hypotheses to explain what may have happened. So exactly what Francis Glessner Lee would have intended them to be used for, we're doing that in the afternoons. And then, of course, over the week, the knowledge is cumulative. So on the Saturday, students are able to put everything together that they've learned over the week by going into the life-sized version that we've built uh, and processing it like an actual scene. Okay, so I, I, I guess I didn't realize the nutshells were very much intertwined with this whole course. Yeah, they're sort of the anchor that they're built around. Okay, okay, that that makes a lot of sense. Now, of course, these aren't the actual nutshells. You're working off of like photos, and I know you have a few uh, of the life-size ones as well, right? Yes, so we work off of photos. Anything that I could find online, There, luckily there have been a lot of tourists over the years, so there are a lot of photos that anyone can Google online. Uh, and get things from different angles, a lot of the same photos, which is helpful, just from sort of slightly to the left or slightly to the right. And Josh, who is the theater department's set designer, and uh, his students, they comb the internet for photos as well. Uh, and then Bruce Goldfarb, who was the curator of the nutshells in Baltimore, I actually also went out there to see them in person and take my own photos. So we've got actual photos of the actual nutshells as well. And I've seen them in person and gone through them with Bruce and he's shown me, you know, taken them out of the, I guess, houses and uh, shown me little, you know, behind the scenes things that we can incorporate. So uh, we know a lot about them, but no, we can't actually, unfortunately they can't travel because they're so fragile. So um, they are, they're in Baltimore for good, I'm afraid, but we can, we actually, um, we're thinking of or are in the process of doing some VR, going with a little camera and sort of capturing them all uh, so that we can have the life-size build uh, and do the same thing. And then maybe put in little, I think they're called chirons, where they're little information bubbles. Uh, and then we would also have the same thing for the smaller nutshell and we can put them together and sort of work with them that way. But that's in the future. But uh, but yeah. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of things um, that we can do, and that also preserves the material too, because you know they are so fragile, and they're they are only in that one place. And there are some. The Smithsonian had them for a little while, and they did some conservation, and they did some. There is a website, I think it's theirs, um, where you can. There are they did I think five VR ones where you can go in and look at them in sort of three D. But that's oh, yeah, I, I, th I think I've seen that actually. Yeah. I, I, yeah. They've, I think it's five, um, but obviously there's 18. So there's a lot more, uh, but so there's a lot we can do. Uh, but for now we're just sort of combing every corner of the internet we can. And, and with the help of Bruce and there's some books as well, there's a picture book, uh, an artistic book by, I think her last name is bots. And then reading Bruce's book, 18 Tiny Deaths, um, there's a documentary on YouTube by, I think her name is Susan Marks. So there's there's material out there if you if you search for it. And I've actually looked through some archives as well um, and her letters, anything again, anything that you can find in the corners of the Internet. Um, I have scoured it. So that's what we're working with. OK, I understand. Now, you know, one more thing about the course. Um, you know, I, I so I attended that event, which I think was the Saturday before. And you you talked about when you when you were speaking, you talked about evaluating a scene using I think you said a sensory sweep. 
Mm-hmm. Can you can you explain what that means? So as I mentioned earlier, uh, everybody does things differently, and whatever works for you works for you. That's fine. But when you are just starting out, or when a scene is particularly complex or emotional, it's easy to be overwhelmed. And or on the other side, if you have been doing the job for a long time, and one scene sort of becomes like another. You're opening yourself up to confirmation bias, things like that, if you're in and out in 10 minutes because you think you know what's happened. For this reason, uh, in teaching, I like to break scene processing down into constituent parts uh, that force you to focus and be there in the moment. So if you can imagine sort of a Venn diagram made up of three equal circles, uh, and then where they sort of come together in the middle creates an overlapping space. I'll break those down. So the the first circle, one of the three circles is the sensory sweep. And I just call it that because we're using your senses. So sensory for senses sweep as sort of a a quick survey of wherever you are. So uh, you're using your senses to gather details about the scene itself. So the physical environment, where you actually are. So what does it look like? Uh, is it clean? Is it dirty? Is it organized or disorganized? Are there things out of place? Was there maybe signs of a struggle or not? Are there pictures on the wall? Are there soot stains on the wallpaper? Uh, you know, what does the place look like? What does it actually look like? What does it smell like? So is it damp or moldy? Um, do you smell cleaning products? Uh, was there food recently cooked? Everybody knows that cat smell. Did they have cats? Um, do you, but there's also things, um, that are less, you know, more subtle, like sulfur, let's say a sulfurous smell or garlic or almonds. If you use garlic, um, arsenic smells like garlic, um, and cyanide smells like almonds. Although not everybody can smell it. It's genetic. But, um, anyway, things that, you know, what you, what does this place smell like? What does it sound like? So, are there pets? Do you hear uh, dogs barking? Do you hear birds? There are respiratory illnesses that are linked to birds. Um, is there a box fan or an air conditioner running? Do you hear neighbors outside? So what does it sound like? What does it feel like? Uh, is it overly hot? Is it cold? Uh, maybe you're looking at heat stress or hypothermia. Is it damp? Is it dry? Is it sticky? Is it dusty? Uh, these are things that our brain usually cancels out. Uh, when we walk into a room, our brain focuses on what's important and sort of blocks everything else out. It, it has to, or else we'd go insane. <laughs> we we see, you know, we walk into a theater, let's say like in the event you uh, attended. So you walk into the theater and you see the seats and you, well, you see the nutshell probably first, and then you see the seats uh, and then you decide which one you want to sit in and that's where your brain goes. But what you don't notice is what kind of fabric the seats are covered in? What color is it? Is there tape on the floor? Because, you know, maybe if you anybody who's been unlucky in a movie theater, you might see the gum right before you sit down, but sometimes you don't, you know, because our brains aren't programmed to focus on those unnecessary details. But at a scene, they are necessary, and we need to train ourselves to notice them when we normally wouldn't. So the sensory sweep as I've called it, is just a good way to do that, to focus ourselves and to be in the moment uh, in that physical environment. The second circle is then what I call ID one. So who is this person? What's their name? How do we know that's their name? Who's their next of kin? 
Uh, and then the sec, the third circle, sorry, would be sort of ID two or whatever you would want to call it. But it's, you know, we know who this person is, what their name is, but ID two is sort of who is this person? What did they do? What was their daily routine? What was their life like? This is where my anthropologist side makes an appearance uh, because that's sort of material culture. What do the objects around a person say about them? But, but, you know, you need to sort of get a sense of who this person is and whether something is out of character or out of, you know, the, everything needs to make sense of the scene. So you need to sort of have a sense of the person and how they lived to, to sort of uh, make those decisions. And then that where all the three circles meet, and there's that space in the middle where they overlap is the body. So as death investigators, obviously, we're always coming at any scene or any investigation from the perspective of the body. So what does the body itself tell us? Is there torn clothing? Um, is there dirt or grass under the nails? Are the f- bottoms of the feet clean? So if you it's a small it's it's a small thing. But, you know, if they have clean feet and they're in the middle of a cornfield or in a ditch or something like that, you know, did did they walk themselves out there? No. Uh, were they placed there? So are we looking more at like a body dump scenario? So these are little things, um, these little details that Francis built these nutshells for is to look for these details uh, because they can really tell us a lot. So the body can also, you know, are we looking for signs of death, rigor mortis, liver mortis? Are they appropriate with, do they, or I should say, do they make sense with, again, going back to that environment that we documented with the sensory sweep? So everything needs to match. Um, so even though you're breaking it up into these parts that sort of force you to look at the details in different ways, they should all come together for a coherent whole. And if something doesn't make sense or something stands out, then you need to investigate it more. I, I think I understand. That's that's quite a bit of information then. is, And that's kind of the, that method is sort of what you cover throughout the the weekly or the week long course, right? It is, yeah. It's sort of it's it's a way of thinking. So it it does seem like a lot of you know brain work, but with experience, it just becomes second nature. And you know, it takes ten minutes to sort of five minutes even to look around a scene and sort of tick the boxes and 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 know what you know. Um, the more you do it, the quicker it becomes. And it just it's just a it's just a paradigm or, or um, just a way of thinking or a set of safeguards that not only does it sort of serve to standardize amongst practitioners, like we were talking about before, but with, with you and your own investigations. So we have inter, inter and intra. If you do the same thing this, the same way every time, you're less prone to miss things or forget things because it just becomes second nature to you. Uh, and it, for- it forces you to focus on things you just you normally wouldn't. And uh, it does seem like a lot, but with experience, you just, you sail right through it. Okay, I see. Now, so you mentioned that you're both a forensic anthropologist and a, and a death scene investigator. And I'm curious about kind of how you got into both. Well, I guess, first of all, which which one of those fields did you get into first? And how did you get into both of them? Uh, I would have to say that forensic anthropology came first. I have a distinct memory of doing an extra credit presentation on forensic anthropology in my AP anatomy and physiology class in high school. So, and that was back oh, wow. when, okay. yeah, and that was back when forensic anthropology was more of an obscure thing, you know, not like it is now. I'm dating myself a little bit by saying that, but yeah, it, it, that's, that would have to say that's my first love. Um, and then I went away and I led a whole other life. I was a performer. I was an opera singer for about 10 years. And then 
I came back in 2008, as I said, and I got into, I called it death studies because it's a bit more encompassing, okay. sort of covers both. But um, yeah, so I, I didn't get, I didn't come back and start doing that until 2008 after I had done a whole other, I call it my other life, a whole other life. So uh, I guess at the heart of it, I'm just a dyed in the wool anthropologist. Um, I'm just really fascinated by how death is viewed and felt and dealt with as a concept. You know, they say death is about the living and it is. Um, it, it, in death investigation, 50% of it, I say, is talking to families, talking to witnesses. It's just as much about the living as it is with the dead. So I think a lot of people aren't prepared for that when they go into the field. But, you know, as humans, it's how we process death, you know, as elaborate rituals, um, funerary archaeology is, you know, the things that we put in the graves and the th how people are dressed. And, you know, it's, I find that, you know, endlessly fascinating or not, you can choose not to have any of that. And that is also a, your choice as a human. So, um, but I'm also interested in the, um, the puzzle solving aspect of it, the science behind forensics and death investigation, uh, that there are new things being discovered all the time that we can apply you know, every, you know, FGG, let's say, so forensic genetic genealogy wasn't even a thing, what, five years ago, and now it's all anybody's doing. It's, um, you know, new science is, is popping up all the time that we can apply uh, in new ways all the time. So I find that, you know, endlessly interesting. And, and also the, the egalitarian aspect of it is of death investigation, I think. You know, Hamlet said, what is it? We fat all creatures else to fat us and we fat ourselves for maggots but essentially you know the king and the beggar are two dishes but they're at the same table you know everybody's the same death is the great equalizer um and we've known that forever so coming back to francis even though she along those lines you know even though she'd been wealthy all her life she was a billionaireess all her life you can really tell she believed in this egalitarianism in death by the people and the stories she chose for her models. They weren't, you know, grand houses with lords and ladies like, you know, Agatha Christie or someone we think of tells those stories. But Francis told real stories of real people living real lives. Uh, and maybe they were a bit down and out and making choices that we wouldn't. But even so, they are always to be respected. So no matter what their circumstances, you know, everybody mattered. Uh, in her models, just like they do in real life. Everyone matters in this world and equally deserve peace and justice. So that's really represented in the nutshells. So they also teach empathy along with all the other things. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly true of the, the life-size model that was there this year, because that was, I think that was Dark Bathroom. Was that the, mm -hmm. the name of that one? And that was kind of a I mean, like the, like the name says, it was dark. It was a, sort of a little dingy and kind of dirty. I mean, you're right that the people that she por portrays in the nutshells, they're they're regular people. They're this is not you know the well to do or the rich or anything like that. Yeah, and not even just regular people. They're people that are marginalized or people that yeah. are often invisible. You know, there's a lot of uh, well, I won't say a lot of, but um, you know, there. Well, it's also been said that the majority of the victims are, well, I say victims, we don't always know they are, but um, the, the the majority of the decedents are female. So that sort of is a, maybe a commentary on that females are more often the uh, 
the object of violence, but I don't know if that's been proven, but it's one thing that has been said. Um, but they, they are oftentimes people that people don't want to look at. They are the sex workers. They are the people that are in abusive relationships or they're the people who are poor, you know, that are just getting by. So, um, they are those more marginalized communities that, that she really, even though she was, be, you know, she was beyond wealthy. She lived this high life all her life from, from a baby onwards, but she still, she still had the Bruce, you know, Bruce talks about how dark bathroom is his favorite because it's the most empathetic, you know, that she could, she could go in and portray this woman's life uh, in a way that is so engaging and non-judgmental. That was really a gift of hers. And it, and it really, I, you know, I said that human side, people don't, people going into death investigations sort of don't think that, think of that as part of the job, but you have to really learn empathy and compassion as well. And, uh, that is, you know, 50% of death investigation, I would say. So it's, it's, it's another thing to, it's another aspect of the job we also need to learn. And, and it's, uh, something the nutshells do really well. Yeah, I agree with that. So who who gets to pick which nutshell gets built every year? Is that was that you or is that someone else? Josh essentially, who is the the set designer. Um Okay. He has the ultimate say cuz he's going to be building it and um what resources does he have? What what's going to be the best in the space and that kind of thing. Um I tend to have maybe two or three candidates and then we have a discussion about it. At least that's how it's gone historically. So but yeah, they're all, they're all are, they're, they're all great, obviously, but some of them are huge and those will be, <laughs> those you can't really, we have to think about what can we build and what can we, what, what space do we have? Cause they, I don't know, I know you've been out to see them. So you, like something mm-hmm. like three room dwelling, three room dwelling is, it would take you 10 years to build that. <laughs> there's just so much detail oh, yeah. and there's so much space. Um, so that, that really, and something like living room or something like that, that is just chocked full of tiny little details, little individual books, balls of yarn, smoked cigarettes, things like that. They would take forever um, to, that would be such a production to mount. So we, we tended to start with the sort of the, the more manageable ones we did. Yeah. So dark bathroom is the smallest. And then we had unpapered bedroom and we were thinking about attic as well. That was one of the forerunners. Um, so watch that space, I guess, but we'll see, you know, we never know. I know. Ne- I never know. I always have a, maybe a couple in my head, but I never, I never know which one it's going to be. Okay. Okay. And then I, so what's going to, the, the one that's built this year, what's going to happen to that now that it's, now that the course is over? Uh, it is actually for the month of March, which is Francis Glessner Lee was, uh, her birthday, uh, is March 25th. So they okay. always, uh, do something sort of Francis related or nutshell related for the month of March. And it's also women's history month. So, uh, that, that works out well. So our nutshell this year is going to be an exhibit displayed down there at the Glessner house museum, which is in Chicago. So just a short train ride down and, uh, March 25th, actually there is a birthday party essentially for her. So there's cake and Prosecco and um, we're going to be going down there and the public is going to be able to walk through 
uh, and make their own conclusions. And then Josh is going to present and then I'll present. And then actually, as um, coincidence would have it, there was a there's an author who will also be there talking about um, a book she just recently wrote, which is all about dark bathroom. Um, Maggie, the our decedent, is the is the main character of her book, and uh, dark bathroom is the setting of the book. And I think it's set against the uh, molasses flood in in uh, I don't know what year it was, but uh, against the great molasses flood. Um, okay. So it should be interesting, but just by sheer coincidence, those two things came together. So um, this month, or sorry, this next month, March, the nutshell will be traveling down there, and then it'll go into storage until we get enough nutshells built up that we can, you know, put them all up together. Okay, yeah, that that's a really uh, exciting coincidence. I like that a lot. I know. And, and yeah. it was weirdly last year as well. We did unpapered bedroom. We in our life sized, obviously, and there was a miniaturist who made the same one, just in you know a, reproduced the miniature. So they we both coincidentally had picked the same one at the same time, and they existed together. I mean, it's the second time that it's been a coincidence. It's really bizarre. Yeah, that is bizarre. That's, yeah. that's cool. Though. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Jana Marie Truesdell. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists like us for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Okay, whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there is one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just bought a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, and I gotta tell you, they are so comfortable. I might even be wearing them right now. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Oh yeah, and while you're there, make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now for the rest of my conversation with Dr. Jana Marie Truesdell on the People of Pathology podcast. Uh, all right, so when I when I met you, you, you called yourself a, a nutshell nut. I, th- I think that's the way you put it. Like, how how did you first come across these? Uh, how did you discover them, and why are they so fascinating to you? Uh, you know, I don't I don't know how I actually I get asked this, and I don't actually have an answer because to me they just sort of have been around. I don't know. They just I don't know how I first learned of them. Um, they just have sort of been in my life for a long time just sort of part of the furniture. Um, and so I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, I did go out to see them. I was at a conference for, uh, in Baltimore a couple of years ago and I tried to go see them, but I didn't make it. And it, it all would have started then, but it was sort of a missed connection. And, but they've just sort of always been around in my orbit, uh, in some way. So I don't know how I actually first learned of them, but I affectionately call I call it nutshell fever. Everybody gets nutshell fever eventually. Um, you don't know about them 
you know, you go your whole life without knowing these things exist. And then as soon as you find out about them, you need to know everything about them immediately. <laughs> you go and you Google them all and you just, they get into your blood. So I call that nutshell fever and everybody gets nutshell fever uh, as soon as they learn about them. But um, I call myself, you know, I, and every, I, I affectionately call people with nutshell fever nuts. And I, and I, um, you know, I, I lived in the UK for almost what, what, eight years or something like that. And so they seem nutters. So I call them nutters, but uh, of which I am one, I'm a, I'm a proud nut or okay. nutter. So it's not uh, it's an affectionate term. So, um, but to know them is to love them, you know? Uh, and I know, I know a fair bit about them. So I've, I've, I have a, a, a good amount of love for them more than, more than most. I think there's a, there's a, 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 a small, but growing contingent of nutters. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, j- just from talking to you, I, I mean, I have kind of a basic idea, I guess, uh, you know, when I've read Bruce's first book and, but you know, way more about the nutshells than, than I probably ever could. There, there's a lot to know. That's the thing. That, and you'll never know. Yeah. It. You'll never, I mean, no one will ever know it all. I'm sure. But they're just, they've become such just items in themselves, you know, like they have a life of their own. Now I have tried to learn everything I can about them. And I still know I, there's there's things I, I I have to talk to the right people, but I haven't worked up the courage yet. And I, I can't just come out and say, well, tell me everything you know about these because they won't because they're a secret. So they're still used in teaching. So uh, it's under lock and key. But I've tried I've certainly tried to know as much as I can. And I've gone through and I've tried to figure out what little things are based on and what does this mean? Uh, but at a certain point, it becomes very difficult because they are intentionally kept mysterious uh, because that's their purpose. So they are um, intentionally nebulous uh, or certain things are changed. Cer- some of them are directly lifted, but some of them are changed so much that you'll, you'll never work it out. So that's, it's a frustration, but that's also, that's also the part of the charm, I think. And mm, that you, okay. you know, you will never know everything there is to know about them. Um, it's a lifetime, or if you do, you'll be 90 when you do, <laughs> you know, it, it'll take you your whole life, which is great. I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm happy to learn about them forever. So, uh, in class, I have sort of real world examples, um, that I sort of pair with each of the nutshells. So for example, Woodman's shack is intentionally unsolvable, uh, because, the scene investigation was botched. So, um, you know, they, they moved the body before they took pictures, they took them and did. So like the point of that one is all the ways that it could go wrong and now we will never solve it. Um, so as a corollary in class, we talk about John Monet Ramsey. Uh, Obviously it's not based on that, you know, there's decades apart, but, um, every nutshell has sort of a little something in a real world case that sort of is echoes of it. Um, So another example would be blue bedroom, which is uh, a man in bed tucked up uh, with a a rifle next to him. um, And it's sort of staged to be, or it's supposed to, it looks like a suicide. Uh, So in class, we talk about Chris Bush and the Oakland County child killer and the children of the snow that's very similar, even though it was in the seventies, I believe, and she was making these nutshells in the forties. So there are a lot of the nutshells that have elements that we see in actual scenes, which I think is very interesting to look at these modern scenes and sort of talk about the shades that 
appear in the nutshells as well. And why we're talking about this with this nutshell, because um, it's easy to think that these are in the forties, they're obsolete, they are aging. They're, you know, we, a lot of people don't know what a parsonage is now. Some of the, one of the nutshells is called parsonage parlor and it takes place in a parsonage. And I would say 60, 70%, cause we're talking students, you know, undergrad students, people who are 20 and 19, they don't know what a parsonage is. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff in the nutshells are aging out of, and people might say aging out of relevance. Like, why are we, why are we studying these when we could be studying actual crime scenes? And you still see, they are still relevant. You still see things in them that you see happening in real world cases. So they are, they're just as relevant now as they were then, even though if, even though they're a bit, you know, fashions have changed and the wording for things has changed, but the, you know, humans don't change. So it, they're, they're still just as relevant. And so I like to um, talk about real world cases that sort of have those shades of those nutshells. And then some of them I do, I do think maybe we're in, inspirational in some way. If we, you know, we talk about things like, um, the Brides in the Bath, which was the famous case uh, at the turn of the century. We talk about Thelma Todd, uh, who was in the 30s. So, you know, there's some of them are before the nutshells. And so maybe, hmm, but um, just as many are after. But, uh, you know, that that also, I say all this um, to come back to there's even even the nutshells, you can learn everything you can about the nutshells themselves, and then you can take that forward and learn about cases that have these echoes of the nutshells. And that brings a whole nother aspect to them. And it, it sends you down alternate avenues. And then you go back to the nutshells and go, oh, yeah, okay. So you're constantly, as I say, you will never learn. You know, they are lifelong teaching tools. And I, you know, I've seen the, obviously I've seen the documentaries and I own the books and I've gone through the archives and letters, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it would be a full-time job to try to track a lot of these things down. Uh, and, yeah. you know, maybe, yeah, maybe I'll use it as a, an excuse to write a book one day, but, but then again, it would oh, just that'd be interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think it really would, but then it's sort of, would it just be for me, for my own personal satisfaction? Cause I don't know if Francis would would like, would want that, you know, for all the secrets to be out. Cause the point is that they aren't. So, oh, um, yeah. you know, people are, people have been really brilliant at keeping the solution secret and, you know, preserving the spirit of them. So I wouldn't want to be the one who spoils that, but I certainly want to know it all. So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It is interesting though, that, that, they are still, like you said, they're still relevant now and there are still things to be learned from them and they're still used in teaching Absolutely. after all these years. Yeah. 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 And I, I think it is interesting to look at modern cases. There's one nutshell, it's red, red, red bedroom that we're supposed to, the witness says that the, this woman got suddenly got, they were drinking, um, you know, and laughing and whatever else. And she just suddenly got up and slit her own throat. Uh, and then went into the closet and that's where we find her. Obviously there's things in the body that might uh, challenge that, but that's obviously we're supposed to work through that scene and find that out. So we're supposed to make our own conclusions, but that's what we're presented with at first. And then there's a, a real world case, Maria Lauterbach, who was in the military and she 
she was killed. Uh, I won't say how or why, but um, she, one of the statements was that she came to a person's door and just slit her throat for no real reason. So, I mean, there are things like that, that you'd, you'd think like, well, who would say that? Like that, no one would ever say that. You'd think that like, who would, who would say that this person just got up and slit her throat? That's such a bizarre thing to say. Obviously they're lying or, you know, something like that. But then, so they seem sort of outlandish in, at, in, at times, but then there are actual people in the real world that, that, that was just, I think, what, in the 2000s? So like, someone just said that. So it might seem like, well, who would ever say that? But people do, you know? So the nutshells, they are still, they still hold that relevance that, you know, they are still used for teaching exactly for that, for that point, because again, people don't change. So their motivations don't change. Their lives don't change. So the nutshells may have been built in the forties and they are of their time, but they're also timeless. It's interesting that you, you, you mentioned that you can kind of reference modern cases to that and i wonder like i i always think about like like modern you know tv and movies portraying you know forensic investigations the the so-called csi effect i think it's called uh, what do you think about that i think it's a bit of a double-edged sword so on one hand it has brought a lot of attention to the fields uh, people know what let's say forensic anthropology or death investigation people know what that is sort of <laughs> um in, in broad strokes, but they know what that is because it's on TV and it's become the, it's, it's been given sort of a certain coolness factor that it never had before. It's sort of been um, brought into the public eye in a way that it wasn't. And that's attracted some really good people into the, the profession. Um, so that's a good thing. But on the other hand, it also brings problems, um, the kind of problems that have sort of come to be associated with the CSI effect, which that term actually can mean several things. So one of the definitions is that it it misrepresents, it, it misrepresents what people actually do and how long it takes them to do it. So, for example, mm-hmm. I, I just met with a prospective student um, a few weeks ago and she was disappointed that anthropologists don't go out with law enforcement and they don't go out and do interviews and searches and sit in and in interrogations. And cause that's what was interesting. And it was like, well, that's no, um, that's for TV. Um, it's a little bit different for death investigators cause we do go and talk to witnesses and we do go out to scenes and things like that. But, um, but you know, still we're not going and sitting in and interrogations. We're not, we're not law enforcement. So that is sort of misrepresented on TV uh, which mm, those people tend to drop out as they go through the process and learn what actually the, the, the job is. But at the same time, they've, I don't want to say they've wasted their time. No time is wasted, but you know, they thought it was something else. Uh, and then another definition is that it creates a lot of armchair scientists. And this is with these, all these Netflix documentaries as well. Um, and HBO, I guess, but, um, these armchair scientists who think they know how things should have been done in an investigation. So they'll say things like, well, why didn't they do that test? Obviously they didn't know what they were doing. And we would have to say, well, sir, because that test doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, and also, and also right. if it, did, it wouldn't prove what you think it would be proving. Um, so it's, this is, this is, per, this becomes particularly problematic when those kind of people are on juries and they think that they're the experts because they watch forensic files and they don't, they don't fully understand what 
can be done or what exists or what the limitations of the actual science is. So the CSI effect can be helpful, but it's it can also be harmful. It's as I say, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, but that's why it's good to get people into the life-size nutshell and to talk through these nutshells because, um, or, you know, any purpose-built practice scenes in general, we just happen to use the nutshells because they're fun and um, there's a history to them. But anything where you can actually experience what it's like, people generally, when they go in, uh, they usually end up freezing like a deer in the headlights and their their minds go blank. <laughs> um, uh, or they will... Or people who are seasoned and they, they're like, I got this. And they'll walk right past something glaringly obvious, but it's a crucial piece of evidence. Or they'll step on something and it's like, oh, I didn't see that. They, they realize going into these things that they don't have the luxury of spending hours. You know, you can sit at home and it can take as long as you want to watching these documentaries and whatever else. But, you know, if you go on to a, a scene of death, you probably there less. You, well, you're certainly there less than an hour. Your investigation anyway is not going to be that long. But you so you're doing things on a on a time budget. Um, so they become very conscious of time and and then get sort of stressed out about it. And but going in and doing these, you know, experiencing it really sort of helps to combat that CSI effect a little bit that, that, well, I know how to do it because I've seen it on TV and why doesn't, why didn't you do this? And well, you you know, you were there for this amount of time. Why didn't, why wasn't this done or blah, blah, blah. And it's, and it's like they, but from someone who's never, who has no training or has never been on a scene. So going into these, these kind of experiences um, are very important to, start to combat uh, that kind of thinking, that CSI effect thinking. Okay. I like that. That's, that's a good idea. And actually uh, along those lines, I mean, you've got another course, uh, I guess a similar course coming up in the summer, although this one I think doesn't, doesn't utilize a nutshell. Uh, c- can you tell me about what, what this course is going to cover? In the summer, we also run a course um, with a similar weekly structure, but with, this is a forensic anthropology focus. So the there's I sort of think of them as bookends. In the winter, we're inside. In the summer, we're outside. But uh, in the winter, it's death investigation. In the summer, it's anthropology. So it follows that daily structure. Uh, on the first day, we... So when you're trying to locate a grave and then working through, uh, you're going least invasive to then most invasive. So on the first day, we would look at aerial photos. We would look at, we have a cartographer. We would, uh, we talk to a victimologist or a criminologist talking about victimology. I talk about what, you know, where a clandestine grave is likelier to be than other places. And we, we obviously, we, we have a story that sort of is an overarching story that we're trying to, um, is it, have we found this person or not or something like that. But um, so we would sort of locate where we think this where we think we should start. Uh, and then uh, we have law enforcement come in and show us all of their drones. And we sort of work with the drones to narrow down our area. We have scent dogs, cadaver dogs come in and narrow down that area. We've got GPR and um, sort of remote sensing stuff on that first day. So we're essentially, we're finding where we think we should be. Uh, the second day, we are documenting the scene. So we're putting up the grid. We're securing things. Well, it's been secured overnight, but uh, we are. Uh, we have GIS, GPS. We have total stations come in, which all of these things are just 
documenting and mapping, essentially mapping our seed. And then we start to excavate in the middle, the middle, the middle couple of days are excavating. So physically digging in the ground and bringing anything we find up or hope, well, hopefully that we find. Uh, and then the last two days are in the lab with actual skeletons. So, you know, real human skeletons, we obviously don't bury real material in the ground. So uh, once we're in the lab, we can look at the the actual bone and we do anthropological things trying to figure out who this person is or people and what happened to them how did they get there or how long have they been there that kind of thing so anthropology anthropology stuff uh and that's the focus of uh the summer the summer class and we also at the same time just like we have the actual police helping with the nutshells and we've got the outside professionals this one is also open to anybody you don't have to be a student. There's, I think, five spaces for non-students. But we also have uh, detectives. Um, and we we have patrol, you know, s- securing the scene and detectives um, working it like it's a real case. So they're there, you know, liaising and working with the students and looking at the evidence that's coming up. Do they want it? Do they not? And so we try to make it as true to life as we can. Uh, but it's all, it also serves as a practice. Uh, for, you know, local law enforcement and whoever else. So it's sort of a symbiotic thing. But yeah, we have, just like with the nutshells, I didn't talk about the lecture. You know, I said that we talk about things in the mornings, but we had um, 15 different experts coming through um, during the week to talk about certain things. So the same thing is true in the summer. As I said, we've got anthropologists, criminologists, cartographers, Drones, scent dogs, GPR, you know, reconstructionists, archaeologists, botanists. You know, we've there's I think there was maybe eleven or twelve people who are coming in and out um, to to help, you know, move the class forward and to share their expertise. It's there's a lot, there's a lot of coming and going, and it's a lot that's going on. And then just like with the nutshell, you know, that weekly structure really does make it quite in, an intense brief period of time, but uh, it's also it's also a lot of fun. So if you if if we survive it, if you come out the other end of it, um, you'll be glad you did. Yeah, that sounds like that would be a really great experience for those students and, and mm-hmm. really for everyone involved. Like, that yeah, sounds amazing. Just like with the nutshells, it's that hands-on experience that takes it out of being sort of abstract and you know puts it into your hands, and you sort of have the physical experience of it, and that's in a completely different. A, a completely different experience than um, reading about it or seeing it on TV. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, all right. So then if, if there is anybody listening who, you know, might be a student and maybe they're interested in becoming a, a death scene investigator, what would, what advice would you have for them? My advice always is to decide where you want to live. <laughs> um, this might not be everyone's advice, but I lived overseas for a long time and got this question. So it's always decide where you want to live and then just wait just wait for an opening. So because it's so death investigation, at least in smaller jurisdictions, if you're, if we're talking about New York or San Francisco or LA or something like that, that's going to be a little bit different, but uh, in smaller jurisdictions and most other places, it is a demanding job uh, and people go into it and then decide that it's not for them or for whatever reason, there's a lot of turnover. So um, there will always be a job open in the place you want to be 
if you are patient. So that's the first thing. You should then expect to train for the ABMDI exam, which is American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators, which is that standardization. Again, I say it's voluntary, which it is. So it's not foolproof, but it is a a, a way towards uh, trying to standardize those investigations, like I was talking about in the beginning. A lot of the tide is sort of turning on that as time goes by. So um, you can expect to train for that and take that exam probably within the first year or so of being hired wherever you are, because there's no sort of courses. There's no, there are certificates here and there, and you can do forensic science more broadly, but there's no real, um, you know, like if you're, if I was going to tell you to go into, to be a physical analyst, you know, for DNA or, or fingerprints or something, or be to be a criminalist, I would say, take the bench sciences go through this route, this route, this route. But there isn't anything like that, really, for investigations. A lot of it is you learn on the job. Um, at least that's the way that it is now. So as I say, you've, you, you find out where you want to be, and then you just wait. And then once you're hired, then you sort of start to go through the process. Um, you would go through the ABMDI certification. Uh, and even if your office doesn't require it, you should do it anyway simply because, again, that standardization, but also because it requires you to keep educating yourself uh, in order to stay certified. So you you don't just take it. And then once you have it, you don't have to ever do anything again. You have to have certain amounts of continuing education credits. And so even if you even if your office doesn't require it, um, you as an investigator should still want to to be doing that. You should always wanting to be it, it helps you just stay current in the field. So beyond that, at the risk of sounding too much again like an anthropologist that I am, I would encourage anyone to um, not forget about that human side as we were talking about. So, you know, death is about the living. So empathy, pluralism, compassion, respect um, for people different than you are. These are all muscles that atrophy if you don't use them. So um, stay mindful of that. Cultivate that side, too. Um, it's just as important because understanding people and why they do the things they do and who they're important to and who is important to them. And, um, you know, those will all make you a better investigator, knowing that about people and treating them as, you know, seeing people, seeing decedents as people. It's very easy to become very clinical and remove yourself and just because you would always you always call them the decedent. And that's because you have to have that that sort of objective removal from them. You can't be um, emotional about it um, because then you're not serving the science and you're not serving that person anymore. So, but, but they are, they are still people. It's a strange, it's a sort of a strange dichotomy of removing yourself, but also, you know, preserving that humanity in your mind. So that part of it, that's a big part of it as well. And people, as I say, people, people don't, don't necessarily um, appreciate that, that that's such a big part of it as well. So be prepared for that. Um, be prepared to talk to a lot of families, be prepared to talk to a lot of funeral homes and sort of there's, yeah, th there's that side of it that be prepared for that, I guess. Uh, I don't know how you would prepare for that, but you know, be, know that that's part of it. Uh, but yeah, other than that, a lot of it's learning on the job. And yes, you can take, if you're going to go to university and you can take 
um, the sciences, biological sciences, things like that. But as a death investigator, it really is on the job training. Um, if you wanted to be an anthropologist, on the other hand, um, you do need to t- to go all the way through that. Uh, in in Europe, you can work more with master's degrees and things, but in the U.S., it's a lot harder. You have to go through the doctoral process. So um, that is a that's a long road ahead of you. Um, and in, in in which case, you would be taking anthropology, archaeology, the bench science. You know, a lot of the sciences, anatomy, those kind of things. A lot more forensic things. But I'm always happy to talk about it. And uh, there's. Uh, these two classes at Parkside are just the sort of the what we have going now. They're, they were sort of um, canaries in the coal mine. So um, watch that space. Okay, uh, great, great. I love it. That's that's a lot of really great advice. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to the one in the summer. I'm going to try to get to that one too. Absolutely. So, uh, do- yeah. So Dr. Trustell, this has been a super interesting conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with me again. So uh, Dr. Jana Marie Trustell, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a preview from my first interview with author Bruce Goldfarb. Now, we talked a lot about the nutshells today in this episode. And in this interview with Bruce, we talk all about the creator of the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death, Francis Glesner Lee. Here's a quick bite. Let's let's move on into the, the, the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. What are these and when were they when were they made? Well, at, at their at their simplest, they are a teaching tool. It's an exercise. Um, and uh, during this homicide, homicide seminar, you know, the curriculum which, you know, has changed very, very little since then. It's, you know, the facts of violent death haven't changed a lot. It's basically, you know, blade people, it's you know, those sorts of things. So they, they learn about blunt force injuries and car force injuries, and they observe an autopsy, and they learn about drowning and poisoning and those sorts of things. So. How do you how do you practice observing a crime scene? Um, and, and that was one of the challenges they faced. You, you can't take the whole group out to a real crime scene uh, for various reasons. Right. Um, and so, you know, she called upon her background and her skills that she had to address that problem by making miniatures, uh, which is what they are. They're uh, recreations of scenes or creations of scenes. They're, they're they're not literal you know, translations of actual scenes, but they're teaching tools, they're examples. They're intentionally ambiguous. They're amazingly, exquisitely detailed. You can hear more from Bruce Goldfarb as we talk about his first book, 18 Tiny Deaths, all the way back in episode eight. All right, great big thanks to Dr. Jana Marie Truesdell. This is one of the rare times I got to meet someone in person before I had them on the podcast. And it was really interesting when I went to UW Parkside and I got to see and walk through a life-size version of one of the nutshells, especially after I saw them, the, the miniature versions, the original versions, in person in Baltimore over the summer. I'm definitely going to try to attend their summer course as well. That sounds really fascinating, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun too. And one of the things I really want to stress here, and we talked about this in the interview as well, is that even though the nutshell studies are several decades old, They're still used in teaching today, and the things that you can learn from them are still relevant in modern death scene investigations. So I applaud people like Dr. Truesdell who are still studying the nutshells and are still finding new things to learn from them. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. 
Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.